And what we are doing this semester in RUF is that we are going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is this famous sermon that he gave in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7. And, and we find ourselves here in the middle of uh, chapter 5 still. And just to set this up before we read it, uh, just to remind you, the, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is it's Jesus' description of what a community of people will look like if they submit their lives to him as their king. And so what we're going to see tonight is another aspect of what it means to be a community that submits to Jesus. And that is that we become a community that begins to hate our own hatred. With that in mind, let me read this passage beginning in verse 21. It says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look at it together, okay? Father, we would ask that you would join us these next few moments. Your word says that um, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word stands forever, and uh, we need you to teach us. We, We need you to impress on our hearts the permanence, the lasting authority, and the the force of your word. And so, would you do that? Would you, by your Spirit, Uh, Open up our hearts, open up our eyes, that we may see, feel, experience, relish, enjoy who you are and what you've done. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. To get into this passage, I want to begin by talking about your stomach, the organ in this region of your body. For, for centuries, medical scientists did not really understand how the stomach functioned, how it took something that was outside of you, food, and, and turned it into something that actually became you, where you got energy from. You know, it was, it was largely a medical mystery, but it seemed pretty straightforward. Food goes in, you get energy from it. Well, in 1822... There is an army uh, medical guy. What do they call those? Doctor. (laughs) There's an army doctor named William Beaumont. Very prepared for tonight. There's an army doctor named William Beaumont, 1822, and he has this little clinic on this main street. And on the street, somebody's gun accidentally goes off, and it shoots this 18-year-old Guy right below the rib cage, and so he falls to the ground, bleeding everywhere. So people are calling out for help, and so because Doctor Beaumont is in his clinic and he's right there, he rushes out, runs to the scene, and begins to help him. And he sees his stomach has been opened up by this gunshot wound, and he sees what this dude just ate: coffee is spilling out, meat and bread is spilling out of this guy's stomach, and so he begins to 
patch the guy up, stop the bleeding, saves the guy's life, and a few months go on. And it turns out, nobody knows if this was intentional or not, but Dr. Beaumont did not completely seal up the hole in this guy's stomach. And so it became what is now called a fistulated hole, where there's a flap of skin covering the hole, but you can peel it back and see into the dude's stomach. I know y'all are thrilled that you're at RUF tonight. But several months pass. Several months go on, and Dr. Beaumont keeps up with this 18-year-old, and he begins to think, okay, this is my ticket to unlock the secret of digestion, how the stomach actually works. And so he begins to, he convinces this 18-year-old to begin doing experiments on him. Here's what he does. He would take little bits of food and attach it to a silk string, (laughs) insert it into the hole, and let it sit there for like an hour. And then he would pull it out and investigate how much of the food had been digested in that hour. He was basically stomach fishing, if we can put it that way. So he goes stomach fishing, and, he's, and he inserts into this, he does this, he does experiments with this dude for like months and years to this poor kid. And he basically takes anything that he can find, any type of food, and figures out how long it takes to digest. And he has journals and journals and journals of, here's how long it takes to digest meat, here's how long it takes to digest a scrambled egg, a boiled egg, a poached egg, a just stomach fishing in this guy's stomach for centuries. For, for <laughs> hundreds and thousands of years. This Here is what Dr. William Beaumont discovered. He discovered over the centuries of his work, he discovered stomach acid. And he figured out that, okay, digestion is not a magical process, it's a chemical process. And uh, the mystery of how, you know, people thought, okay, this is how the stomach worked, you put food in, you get energy. He began to discover that this process was way more complex and way deeper than anybody ever imagined. I'm sure... You're wondering why I'm talking about this. Here's why I'm talking about this. Because uh, if you take the the moral law of God in the Old Testament, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, if you were to take that on the surface, it seems relatively easy to understand. It seems relatively easy to do. But if you actually get into the guts of the law of God, you begin to see it is way, it's way deeper than you thought it was. It's way more complex than you thought it was, and it makes you a little nauseous in the process. And so what Jesus is going to do in Matthew chapter 5, from, from this point all the way to the rest of this, the end of this chapter, is he basically goes stomach fishing, if I can call it that, with the Old Testament law. He takes six examples from the Old Testament law, and he begins to get into the guts of it to show you that the, you know, it seems relatively easy to understand on the surface, but it's way deeper, way more complex than you ever imagined. And so he begins with kind of a softball. Right here in verse 21, he begins with, you shall not murder. Seems relatively easy, right? I mean, my guess is there are not a whole lot of murderers in this room. My guess is that there's probably a whole lot of people in here that have not killed somebody else. So when you come to that point in God's law, 
it seems like, okay, check, done, haven't killed anybody, I can move on to the kind of the next thing. And Jesus is going to show you, and he's going to show me, you think you understand the Bible, but you don't. It's way deeper, way more complex, and a little bit more nauseating than you ever thought. So what we're going to do is we're going to see how it gets into the guts of this particular law in three ways tonight. What he's going to do is, he, is he's going to show you what this law reveals, then he's going to show you what this law requires, and then he's going to show you what it remedies. Three things, they all start with the same letter, so it's easy to remember. He's going to show you what this law reveals, what it requires, and then what it remedies. Okay? So let's look at the first thing. What does this softball law, do not murder, what does this reveal about us? Well, okay, look at verse 21 again. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay? He says, on the surface, it seems like it's just as simple as not killing another human being. But then he goes deeper. In verse 22, he draws out, kind of, he unpacks this in three particular ways. Let me show you how. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, number one, this is the first way he unpacks it. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Number two, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And number three, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Three ways he unpacks it. Let's just look at each of these three one at a time. Go a little bit deeper into it. Look at the first one, verse 22. Everyone who is angry with his brother. Jesus is saying that, that anger and murder stem from the same root. Now, I don't typically get into the original Greek language with you, but I think it's important here. Of the Greek language, there are two Greek words for the word anger. The first word is the word thumos, which is, this is like the explosive anger, the flash in the pan anger. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're pissed. But then you calm down after like five minutes. You get in a fight with your girlfriend, you punch through the drywall. You calm down after 30 minutes and repair your fist. That's the first type of anger, thumos, flash in the pan, explosive. The second Greek word for anger is orge. And orge is the word for that slow simmering kind of anger. You know what I'm talking about? Where, where you're just, you, you kind of, um, it's, it's a decided bitterness towards somebody that has hurt you or has offended you or betrayed you. This is the type of anger where you fantasize about retaliating. You know, you fantasize about how you would tell that person off. You would, you know, you would put them in their place. You would publicly embarrass them. That's the second type of anger. The Greek word that Jesus uses when he says, whoever's angry with their brother, he uses the second word. Orge, that, that slow, smoldering, simmering type of anger. Now, I think you know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Because for a lot of you, you have this type of anger towards your roommate. That slow, simmering, decided bitterness towards your roommate. And here's, here's how I know that you have this. is because you have the scorecard in your head. You know what I'm talking about? You have the running tally with vivid details of everything that annoys you about your roommate. You know, so you have in your mind, here's how many times I've done the dishes compared to them. Here's how many times I've cleaned up the living room 
compared to them. Here's how many times I've had my friends over compared to them. I'm assuming you're laughing because this is striking a nerve, right? This is you. We have this sort of slow, simmering, smoldering resentment towards our roommates. And Jesus is saying, you have to hear him. Hear what Jesus is saying. He is saying that is a violation of do not murder. Jesus seems to be saying that that's somehow equivalent to you murdering your roommate. But for some of you, it's not your roommate. It, it is an uh, ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend. Maybe you were in a relationship and things were going along well, and for whatever reason the thing ended, maybe the other person cheated on you, person betrayed you, blindsided you, you didn't see it coming, things were going great, and now you have that decided resentment towards your ex-boyfriend or your ex-girlfriend. You know, you're scrolling through Facebook, you see the pictures of them with other people, they're having fun, and you just get pissed, and you want them to be miserable like you are. And Jesus is saying that smoldering resentment is a violation of do not murder. That's the first way he unpacks it. Whoever is angry, but he goes on. Let's look at the second way. The second way he unpacks it, do not murder, verse 22, is whoever insults his brother. Now that word insult, he's talking about an attack on somebody's mental capabilities. This is, this is attacking somebody at the intellectual level. This is basically like calling someone stupid. You're an idiot. Attacking someone's mental abilities. And look at the third way. The third way he says, whoever says, you fool. And it sounds like he's repeating what he just said, but what he means by you fool is not an attack on someone's mental ability, but rather an attack on their character. This is like calling somebody spoiled, calling somebody lazy. You see how that's an attack on their character, not their mental ability? So put these two things together, and here's what's scary about this. What's scary about this is that we love to call people stupid. We love to make fun of other people. I mean, I think this is partly why we watch shows like uh, Jersey Shore. And we watch shows like uh, uh, Housewives, uh, Real Housewives of fill in the blank, whatever. This is why we watch Honey Boo Boo. This is, uh, I think, partly why, confession, partly why I like the show The Bachelor. Because, wow. It is, it's sick. Here's the reason why. I think the reason why we like these shows is because we like to see these people on the screen and to say, these are awful, terrible people. These are, dis- these are crazy, evil, despicable people. And that sort of sense of just indulging in hatred and bitterness towards another person makes you feel better about yourself. And it, there's just that, that sense of, you know what I mean, that delicious self-satisfaction of looking at a screen and being like, those people are awful. Look, we, we, do it on, um, we do it on Facebook and Twitter where we, we call people stupid behind their backs to the World Wide Web, you know, where, where we say things like, uh, we update our status, hey, dear guy on your cell phone in the library, can you shut your stupid face? <laughs> You know, you update your status. Hey, weirdo in the grocery line behind me, can you learn how to sneeze into your sleeve like the rest of us? So you say these things, make fun of people, and you love it. You love to make fun of other people. And then we all read it and we click like because we love it too. 
here's what's scary about this, is that we, we are guilty of murder. Jesus is looking at all these examples and saying, don't you see how do not murder, it's not just about killing people, it's about fantasizing about killing them. It's about killing their reputation. It's about wanting to see them harmed or attacked or put in their place. It's wanting to see somebody damaged in some way. And Jesus is saying, we're all murderers. So what does this reveal about us? I think it reveals two things. On the one hand, it reveals how self-righteous we are. Because we look at this and we think, yeah, okay, I haven't killed anybody good. I don't need a savior when it comes to this aspect of my life. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you do. You may think you're cool, that you're good just because you haven't physically killed anybody, but there is a sewer of hatred running through your heart. It it exposes and reveals how self-righteous we are, and it exposes how sick our hearts are. I mean, this has to, you have to come to terms with this, that something is just jacked up inside of you to think, okay, if I get cut off in traffic, I'm pissed about it. If, if somebody plays too physical in an intramural game, I'm pissed about it. If somebody says something bad about me behind my back, I'm pissed about it. And so here's what you have to ask. How fragile and insecure is your self-image where if somebody crosses you in some way, there's a volcano that erupts in your soul? Nobody gets to disrespect me like that. Nobody treats me like that, so I'm going to erupt and explode. That just shows us how toxic and sick and jacked up our hearts are. I mean, don't you see that that what Jesus is doing, he's getting into the guts of this, and he's revealing and exposing to you and to me, and we're messed up. We are self-righteous and sick at the same time. But he goes deeper, because he doesn't just show you, okay, here's what this reveals about you, but this, he's going to take it a step deeper and show you what this requires from you. Okay? Let's look at the next level in here. In verses 23 through 26, Jesus tells us two stories to illustrate what this positively requires. The first story is about going to worship. The second story is about going to court. The first story is about two Christians. The second story is about a Christian and someone who's not a Christian. But both of these stories have the same basic point. What is it? Well, look at verse 23. I'll read it to you. It says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, okay, so you're at church, you're worshiping God, and all of a sudden you remember that you've got an issue with somebody else. And Jesus says, you need to leave church right then. He's giving you a hall pass to skip church. On what grounds, though? To go and be reconciled with someone that you have an issue with. What Jesus is basically saying, don't come in here and try to connect with a Trinitarian God who is himself a unity and a community. If there's beef and drama and issues with you and somebody else in the community. Jesus is saying it doesn't make sense. It's, it's hypocrisy. It kind of reminds me of that SNL skit uh, with Will Ferrell probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, 
where he's kind of in, in his backyard. It's kind of like a suburban setting, and him and his wife have this couple over. And he's in the back porch, and he's flipping burgers. And, like, the couple comes up, and they're doing the suburban kind of chit-chat thing. And so he's talking, like, oh, hey. And so he kind of interrupts, and he's kind of, he kind of looks off camera. You don't see what he's looking at. And he says, hey, Brandon, can you do me a favor? Uh, get off the shed. All right, buddy. And so he, he starts talking. In a typical kind of SNL joke format, the thing starts escalating. So he's talking with these folks about golf, and all of a sudden he's like, get off the shed now. Get off the shed. So golf uh, would be great this weekend. And, of course, by the end, he's, he's literally screaming, I will punch you in the face. Get off the shed. So he's just screaming murderous threats. Ridiculous. But here's what he's doing. He is trying to positively connect with this person, all the while screaming murderous threats to this person. And Jesus is saying, look, don't come into church all smiley, happy, excited to connect with God if at the same time you're basically screaming in your heart murderous threats to somebody else. It doesn't make sense and it's ridiculous and it's hypocrisy. But look at what, actually notice what Jesus says here. He did not say, okay, if you're in church and all of a sudden you realize you've got an issue with someone else, then go. That's not what he says. He says, go and pursue reconciliation when you realize that someone else has something against you. I mean, think about that for a second. He, he is saying, and this is basically the point of the second story as well. Make things right with your accuser, someone who has something against you. Jesus is saying, don't, pers- don't just pursue love and reconciliation with someone when you have beef with them. But pursue love and reconciliation with someone when you know that they have beef with you. Think about how crazy this is. Jesus is saying, here's what this law requires. Not just that you seek to remove the anger in your heart, but you seek to remove the anger in your adversary's heart as well. That's what this law requires. Not that you just seek to remove the anger in your heart, but that you also seek to remove the anger in your adversary's heart as well. So, let's just say, you know that your roommate's upset with you. And you know that they're upset with you, not because they told you, but because they're a coward. And they acted cold towards you and short around you. And actually they talked bad about you to your other roommates and your other friends. And they're the people that told you. So now you know that your roommate has an issue with you. And let's just say that the reason that they're angry with you when it, when it hits your ears sounds completely ridiculous. Like they're angry with you because you drank the last bit of the milk and you didn't replace it. Or maybe they're angry with you and it's completely their fault. Like, like they're too sensitive or they mis- have just misread and misinterpreted the situation. So here's the situation. You know that your roommate is upset with you, and the reason they're upset with you is ridiculous in your eyes. Now, every instinct in you right here and right now is to puff up your chest with pride and to say to yourself, well, if they've got an issue with me, they can come and talk to me. They can go put their big boy pants on, their big girl pants on, and come and talk to me. Otherwise, what do you want me to do about it? (laughs) And if they bring me something, I will listen to it. If it's legitimate, but if it's ridiculous, I'm going to roll my eyes at it and not entertain it. I mean, what do you want me to just, uh, just assume responsibility for ridiculous accusations against me? No, this is not my problem. 
Do you see any of those qualifications in this text? I don't. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter if they've been a coward. It doesn't matter if they've got into the situation in a bad way. It doesn't matter if they've talked smack behind your back. It doesn't matter if the reason that they're upset with you is stupid and ridiculous to you. What you have to do is go to them. You take the initiative and you go to them and what you say is you ask them what you've done wrong with a genuine interest to know. And then you listen patiently. And you don't interrupt them. And you don't um, make excuses. You don't justify yourself. You listen. And my guess is there's going to be somewhere in their issue with you that you're going to need to own responsibility for. I mean, if the Bible is true and it says that you're a sinner, my guess is there's, you have probably done something wrong you may not have even known. And you do the hard work of owning your junk and asking for forgiveness. And you do the hard work of reconciliation with your friend, with your roommate. Will that be painful? Yes. Will that be messy? Yes. Will that be a step towards rejuvenating life into y'all's relationship? Yes. If you do not, the alternative is that you are complicit in the murdering of that relationship. So if you're a Christian, if you claim to follow this Jesus, who in your life do you need to get right with before Sunday? Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone in this room. Someone in your life, if you have issues with, the urgency of this text is put on you. The onus is put on your shoulders. You go, you initiate, you deal with it. That's what this law requires. I told you, as Jesus gets into the guts of this thing, it's way deeper than you thought, it's way more complex, and it's a little nauseating. But Jesus has shown us, here's what this reveals about us. It exposes our self-righteousness and our sickness. Here's what this requires from us. Not just that we try to seek to remove the anger in our heart, but we seek to remove the anger in the hearts of people that have issues with us. Last thing. What does this remedy? Here's what this remedies. What this remedies is this. A slavery to bitterness and to anger in your life. It remedies a slavery. He's trying to liberate you. If you are Go, if you're a girl and you're going to Kristen Ball's Bible study on the book of James on Friday, which I highly recommend to you, if you're going through the book of James, you will get to two different places in the book of James where he refers to the law, the law of God as a law of liberty. He is trying to liberate you, to free you from a slavery to bitterness and to self-justification and to anger because that way of life is miserable. And so look at what he does. My guess is you read these words, you, you've dealt with this, and if you've, if you've allowed this passage to undo you in some way, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I, I've, got, I've got a list of rules that I'm going to put in place that I need to do. I, I need to stop talking smack about people on the internet. I need to pursue reconciliation with this person. I need to try and stop the anger in my heart. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Isn't that what Jesus wants you to do? He wants you to do all this stuff. Well, yeah, of course. Of course that's what he wants you to do. But if that's all you do, it will never deal with the toxicity in your own heart. So what do you do? Well, think of it like this. Think of the law of God kind of like a mirror, a handheld mirror that you hold up to yourself. 
What the law does is it exposes things about you, even things that are ugly that you don't like about yourself. So let's just say you're holding up a mirror to your face and it exposes that you've got a glob of dried like spaghetti sauce on your chin. If you try to take the mirror and use that to be the thing that, that wipes the spaghetti sauce off, it doesn't work, it doesn't make sense. All that the law can do, all that the mirror can do is expose you to your need for something else. A need for a napkin, a need for a washcloth, something else. If you come to the law of God and it exposes you and, expo- and you see how sick and angry and hateful and bitter you are, if all you do is try to stack up more laws, more rules, that's basically what you're doing. You're taking the law, you're taking the mirror and try to fix yourself with the law and it won't work. What the law does, what the mirror does is all it does is reveal to you that you need something else. What do you need then? Well, it's a little counterintuitive, but here's what you need. You need to see the character of God in this passage. And the character of God in this passage that's being shown to us is that God is a God of anger. I mean, did you notice how many times in this passage Jesus talks about judgment, he talks about hell, he talks about these things that we don't like to talk about, but you can't avoid it, it's right there. Jesus is saying God is a God of anger, he is a God of wrath, he's a God of judgment. And I know that's not PC, it's not comfortable to talk about, but it's in the Bible. But here's the question. What does God do with his anger? Does he pour it on you? No. This is different from every religion in the world. Is that if you are in Christ, what God does is he pours it out on his son instead of you. Think of it like this. If you fast forward to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, or in Matthew 5, if you get to Matthew 26, Jesus, the night before he's going to be crucified. He's in the garden and he's praying by himself to God and he asks God to let this cup pass from him. Now what is he talking about? Because he's not holding a cup. So what cup is he talking about? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, there is this metaphor that is used to talk about God's wrath. And it's talked about as this kind of toxic, poisonous drink mixture in this cup. You hear this in Psalm 75, Isaiah 63, Jeremiah 25. All throughout the Bible, this is this threat. And Jesus is saying, God, don't make me drink this cup. If it, if it, is, if it is your will for me not to drink this, for me to undergo this, get me out of this. <coughs> And God says, you've got to go forward. If we're going to save people, this is what has to happen. And so Jesus is looking down the barrel of going to the cross. And so he goes to it, terrified, in anguish, because he knows at the cross he's going to be drinking the entire cup of God's wrath all the way down to the bottom, which means this, that on the cross, Jesus is being obliterated by God's white, hot wrath and fury. So that if you are in Christ and you are connected to him by faith, this means God has no more wrath for you ever. No more anger for you ever. No more judgment for you ever. He can never hold your sins against you because he's held them against Jesus. No punishment for you ever, even though you and I are murderers down to the core of who we are. When you begin to see that type of love and that begins to get into your heart and into your bloodstream, that begins to melt away the icy coldness around your heart. 
And you begin to warm up to people that you were once cold towards. Because you begin to say to yourself, if this is how God has dealt with me, if this is how he's dealt with his anger against me, how can I treat other people any differently? How can I hold stuff over people's head anymore? How can I make them pay for stuff? How can I fantasize about hurting them and embarrassing them? It makes no sense. If you're connected to Jesus, the gospel of grace is what frees you. It liberates you from the slavery and the tyranny of bitterness and anger and hatred. I'll I'll wrap up with this story that I heard recently in the news. This took place last September. So September of last year in New Bedford, Massachusetts. There is a man, Juan Rodriguez, 55-year-old man, who is the owner and the employee of this little corner market, like a 7-Eleven or like Phil's. And he's, he's chilling behind the counter and he's reading his Bible, weirdly enough. And in comes a customer, this 20-year-old young man, The customer comes up to the front desk, pulls out a knife, and demands money. Now, Juan Rodriguez, the guy behind the counter, somehow distracts the robber long enough to to basically get a baseball bat and and basically kind of chase him out of the store. So now they're running out of the store, and he chases him down the street. So you've got this 55-year-old man with a bat running after this, you know, 20-year-old little hoodlum running down the street, and the guy is yelling out, help, help. He's trying to call for help, and there there are these other guys on the street that see what's going on, and they run up, and they tackle the robber, take him out long enough for Juan Rodriguez to get on the phone and call the police. So while he's on the phone with the police, there's kind of like this mob that begins to form around this, the robber, of like eight to ten guys, and what they begin to do is they begin to start violently assaulting him, punching him kicking him, just this kind of angry mob. They begin stripping him of his clothes. They leave him in his underwear, kicking him, taking off all of his clothes. And as Rodriguez is on the phone with the police and he sees what's happening, he runs up, throws himself on top of the robber to shield him. The person that just was trying to rob him at knife point. And now he is the one absorbing and receiving the blows from the mob and they eventually stop paramedics get there, take away the robber, is in critical condition, but his life is saved. Juan Rodriguez saved his life by absorbing the blows himself. This is an amazing picture of what it looks like with us and God. Because we come to God with our knife in his face, our anger, our hatred, our bitterness, because we hate and we love to hate and we love to make fun of people that are made in his image. And while God has every right to extinguish his wrath and his fury and his judgment on us, what he does is he sends Jesus to come and to shield us. And so when we are hidden in Christ, connected to him by faith, Jesus absorbs the blows. Jesus receives and absorbs the wrath that you and I deserve. He dies so that you may live. If that is what God has done with his anger, poured it out on Jesus instead of you, completely by grace, the question for you is, what are you going to do with yours? What are you going to do with your anger and your hatred and your bitterness? Let me pray. Father, would you, by your grace, melt our hearts to the core of their being? 
Would you shock our hearts out of the cold, icy um, resentment, the smoldering anger and contempt that we have for other people? And would you make us in the core of our hearts like your son who extends grace, who is gentle and kind and loving? Would you make us the type of people like Juan Rodriguez that would even throw ourselves on top of our enemies to save their lives? Father, would you do an amazing work in RUF and in this community and on this campus? Would you turn us into people that are like this, who hate our hatred and fight against it and repent of it and take it to the cross? And we would pray all this in Jesus' name.